Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Panasonic Lumix Cameras, where form meets function. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by FreshBooks. They're the easy-to-use invoicing solution that's helping freelancers and small business owners get organized and save time invoicing. You can try FreshBooks for free. Just go to freshbooks.com TWIP and enter TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section when signing up. This episode of TWIP is made possible in part by our newest sponsor, Animoto. You can head over to animoto.com slash TWIP and use the offer code TWIP to get 15% off an Animoto Pro account. This week on TWIP... Lily, the new throw-and-shoot camera drone, is revealed. Canon updates its Nifty 50, and Wolfram launches a new image identification website. It's Monday, May 18, 2015, and this is TWIP. Welcome back to TWIP. I'm your host this week, Rob Knight, sitting in for Frederick Van Johnson. And normally you'll find me on the TWIP network at your itinerary for travel and photography. But today I get to drive the big bus and, uh, and fill in for Frederick, so I'm pretty excited about that. And joining me to discuss the world of photography this week are the editor-in-chief of Digital Photography School and the brains behind Digital Photo Mentor, Darlene Hildebrandt. Hey, Darlene. Hey, Rob. And the man behind Don Komarechka Photography, coincidentally, Mr. Don Komarechka. It's a good thing those names match, yeah. <laughs> yes, and uh, before we get into the show, I want to thank our first sponsor for This Week in Photo, and that is Panasonic Lumix Cameras. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Panasonic Lumix Cameras and the new Lumix FZ1000 4K long zoom digital camera. Now, this bridge camera is a powerhouse for shooting 4K hybrid photography. You know, hybrid is when you mix stills and video. And this camera shoots at 4K in 30p. You can then, once you shoot that footage, you can later extract 8 megapixel stills from the 4K footage. It's just crazy. And it features a large 1-inch 20.1 megapixel sensor. And it's got a bright Leica 25 to 400 f2.8 to 4.0 fixed lens. Let me say that again. That's a 25 millimeter to 400 millimeter at f2.8 to 4.0 lens. And it's a Leica lens, so it's super bright. Um, and it focuses fast with the Lumix depth through defocusing technology. So you get the long lens, long fast lens, and super fast focusing in this thing in one solid compact body. And if you add to all that the fact that this thing has a smartphone Wi-Fi app for remote control, if you got one kind of super package in one little package that you put in your bag, and you know this that that lens just blows me away at twenty-five to four hundred. It's just uh, it's a long you know what they call a super zoom. Plus, it does all of that stuff in four K. That means you can shoot everything from portraits to photographing photographing lions in Africa from a safe distance and still get amazingly cool and sharp images, um, still images and video in 4K. Now you can learn all about this camera over on our All About the Gear show. Just enter FZ1000 in the search box on thisweekinphoto.com or you can head over to shop.panasonic.com or lumixlounge.com. Remember, Panasonic Lumix cameras where four meets function. And we'd like to thank Panasonic for their support of This Week in Photo. And here's a quick look at what's happening this week on the TWIP network over on Street Focus. Valerie has some great street photography tips for you. Plus, over on The Fix, Jan Kabili has a great discussion with the godfather himself, Mr. Rick Salmon, about Photoshop plugins. And over on Your Itinerary, Rob Knight helps you learn to see the light with Mr. Chris Smith. All that and more is happening this week on the TWIP Network. You can subscribe to any or all of our shows over at thisweekinphoto.com slash subscribe. Okay, so our first story is 
is pretty exciting. When I got the show notes this week, I was I was stoked. And actually, I had never heard of the Lily drone until Frederick and I were actually in a meeting the other day, and he had to share his screen and show me the video for the uh, the Lily camera. And um, like Frederick, I've been wanting a drone for a long time. So this thing is basically an autonomous camera drone. And I don't know if you guys are using drone cameras now, but um, basically the deal is you you toss this thing into the air and it fires up automatically and follows you around. Did you guys get a chance to watch the video? I did, yeah. Is this something that that interests you at all? What do you what do you think? Well, for the kinds of things that I do, probably not, but I mean, I can see tons of application. Um, would it be cool to have one and take it along everywhere you go? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I was watching, you know, like the kayaker going down the river. How cool is that, right? I mean, you don't need a crew to get off on every bridge and drive ahead and photograph you coming. You just have your drone follow you. That's, that's way cool. And you can do it all by yourself. Um, for me as a, you know, primarily travel photographer and teacher, is it one more thing that I want to haul to another country? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, see, and, that, and that's um, what I was thinking. As an instructor, this is something that I figure I could just toss into the air and it could follow me around while I'm leading a workshop and I don't have to take time away from my clients to drive it. You know, what well, do you think, Don? I know you, yeah. you lead <laughs> workshops too. It, it, it's an excellent tool for B-roll, right? So, I mean, if you're doing anything like that, you need behind-the-scenes footage, and maybe you're a one-man show where you don't have an assistant that can be trailing you around with a camera. This becomes your assistant. And, you know, the technology is really quite incredible because, uh, yeah, it's being toted as something to follow you around and take, uh, you know, uh, aerial selfies and, and, and what have you. And, Yes, there is a subset of the market that that is going to appeal to, uh, the, the same subset that are buying selfie sticks and things like that. Now, I'm not going to say that that's the average photographer. That's not. That's probably not our audience. Um, but there is value for uh, for even professional usage from that kind of thing. And it's funny because when I look at this kind of technology, I mean, th this is really just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I was doing some uh, some reading on, on similar topics, and I ended up coming across this really fun story um, that uh, it, it just basically says that you know, Intel is working on similar things, and, and it says that um, they, they're using uh, RealSense cameras to make a 360-degree map of the world supporting depth and distance analysis. Um, <laughs> on a drone and so that's another thing that's you know in the works and so with all of these things coming together uh, that, <laughs> it's, it's kinda scary you know it, this the technology is reiterating so quickly who would have thought to own a drone five years ago and five years from now what kind of a world are we gonna live in right I agree and that that raises another question in in this age of selfie sticks and Instagram and all this stuff Darlene do you think a camera like this is gonna have more mass appeal than, say, like a DJI Phantom? I think so, yeah, because it looks like it's got, like, I think the barrier to entry is twofold. One is price, and the second is is how do you use the darn thing? Like, I know a friend of mine got one of the Phantoms or whatever, whatever brand he has, um, and there was definitely a learning curve. Like, he crashed his a couple of times just learning to fly the darn thing, right? So if it's, you know, just a sim literally as simple as throw it up in the air and it follows you or based on what I saw in the video and some of the information is you could program it to, you know, come to the side of you or directly above or circle around you or however you want it to go without you needing to have any knowledge of having to do the how to do that I think the barriers to entry have come way down to that type of technology um, I mean the workshop thing I hadn't even considered that that's a great idea but also what about weddings you know like uh, as a wedding photographer how many people are also incorporating videos into um, their wedding albums, you know, like they have now these virtual albums where there's stills with moving images as part of the wedding album. So how great is that would be to have, you know, aerials or the ceremony is outdoors and you've got some aerial shots. So, yeah, I can see the applications for this being quite widespread. Sure. So the, your uh, wedding photographer would hand you this little little thing to put in the in the groom's pocket and then he's got his aerial stuff taken care of while he's taking stills on the ground. That's exactly. That's actually, I didn't think about that either. Um, I mean, the thing shoots really high quality, 1080p at 60 frames per second, um, and even faster at 720p. So it seems like a pretty nice camera. But uh, one of actually one of my clients on a workshop last weekend 
asked me about it. I was talking about it, and he said, "Well, yeah, but by the time it comes out, what what's going to be available then?" And and I didn't realize until he mentioned it that it's not supposed to ship until next February. So you can pre-order it now for five hundred bucks, but geez, by next February, who's to say that DJI is not going to just program all that same functionality into the Phantom, right? What do you what do you think, Don? Yeah, I mean, is it worth at this point with technology, do you do you bother to pre-order anything, or do you just wait until kind of the last minute when things come out? It, it's an excellent point because the, the uh, I, I don't want to call it a gimmick here, but the main feature, the main sell, is uh, is the fact that it will follow you around and it's programmable to do that. It might require some sensors and it might require some software and significant processing power, but chips are getting cheaper and cheaper and more powerful and lighter as they go. And so DJI is one of the biggest manufacturers of this kind of thing. And it, I don't know if it's patent encumbered or all of that kind of stuff behind the scenes. Um, but it could very likely be that another company comes along and produces exactly the same thing or better. I mean, we are on the cusp of self-driving cars. And uh, MIT is making underwater robots that can think for themselves. And, and all the technology is getting lighter and faster and uh, more predictive. And with so many players in the exact same pool and sales of drones and, and drone-like devices uh, accelerating at an exponential pace, man, February of next year, competition is going to eat that up. Uh, it, it might be that they've got enough of a head start, um, but by that same time frame, maybe a couple of months thereafter, you're going to see other people imitating exactly the same features. So if you're used to a DG, uh, DJI kind of uh, world, say you already own one, you're familiar with those tools, then it's hard to say. The, the technology is so speculative, and if I make any prediction now, I there's like a 5% chance that, that I'd be right, but there's a chance that other people could come in and steal their thunder. Sure. Well, 3D Robotics already has a drone that does most of this functionality. I think the big difference is the, the Lily is designed for people who don't care about flying drones to have a drone. That's, that's their big selling point because all this technology, like you said, everybody's going to be doing this by the time, by next February. So, um, I think it's funny in the video they literally have a woman that looks like a grandmother. It looks like a you know a grandparent couple, and she throws it into the air. So it's that you know it's so easy even your grandma can fly your drone. So I think that's if anything that's going to be their their catch because the technology is going to um, everything's going to be at that same level by the time they're actually on the market. And then they'll make them aesthetically pleasing, like have them like painted like hummingbirds and things. So that, you know, you, you'll just see these robotic birds flying around the sky in a couple of years. That's right. Well, it's, it does have the little eyes kind of cut out. The LEDs are in the shape of little little squinty eyes already. So uh, I wonder if that makes it to the final product. It's interesting. Well, before we move on to story number two, I want to thank our second sponsor for this episode of This Week in Photo, and that's lynda.com. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online training platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, just visit lynda.com slash twip. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash T-W-I-P. Now, lynda.com is for problem solvers, creative people, or just people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel or learn negotiation tactics or build a website or even boost your Photoshop skills. Just go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. lynda.com offers a ton of courses on Lightroom, Photoshop, and the Adobe Creative Cloud, and many on just getting inspired or re-inspired about your photography. With a lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching, and you can stream thousands of video courses on demand and learn at your own schedule. And courses are structured so that you can watch them from start to finish, or you can consume them in bite-sized pieces. You can even download tutorials and watch them on the go from your iOS or Android device. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. So whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or just want to learn something new, visit lynda.com slash twip and sign up for your free 10-day trial. That's l-y-n-d-a dot com slash twip. Okay, so Canon updated a lens that I'm sure if we all don't have, then we have had at some point. And uh, the classic nifty 50 
the uh, 50 millimeter f1.8 Canon lens. It's 125 bucks, and they updated it with uh, a quieter motor, so you can use it for video. And uh, it's, it looks like uh, more blades on the aperture, which would make your your bokeh uh, more uh, attractive, I guess, and uh, and a bigger manual focus ring. So these are a lot of features that would help for video in particular. Um, what do you think, guys? Are you guys going to run out and uh, and buy the the new $125 Canon lens? I wouldn't go out and buy it right away because you know I'd, I'd probably be going a, a step up in in my own gear that I purchased. But I would certainly recommend something like this uh, to somebody just buying into a digital SLR. If you're buying Canon or Nikon, I always recommend or any manufacturer really. Um, I always recommend a cheap 50 millimeter lens. It is the best second lens that you could add to your camera bag for the extra features and and the ability to learn from it. The sure. original uh, 50 millimeter lens, yeah, it was plastic, had a plastic mount, and it, you get what you pay for because these things range between like 100 and 150 dollars, depending on where you are on which side of the border. Uh, you know, I'm in Canada, so they're a little bit more expensive here, but um, it, you, you can't beat it. And and now it's better. Well, okay, it, you're still getting what you pay for. It's not it's not like it's L series glass, and uh, th there are some compromises to be had, but uh, quieter and smoother focusing, probably faster focusing focusing too because the older lens uh, was, was somewhat dated. Uh, all of the other enhancements including a metal uh, lens mount, these are all very welcome. Um, and if you don't already have a lens like this, I mean, I, I, they've announced it. I, I haven't gotten my hands on, on this particular piece of hardware so I can't say from personal experience. But I can say with a little bit more certainty here that if you don't have one, you want one. Sure, I agree. Well now, Darlene, what do you think? if? So you're Canon and you want to have a nicer 50 millimeter lens and then you've got companies like Sigma coming out with what basically everybody says is the sharpest 50 millimeter lens that there is. That's an f1.4 lens and it's less than $1,000. So would you update your $125 lens or like Don mentioned, the next step up, they have a lens in the $300 range It's an f1.4. It seems like that might be the first lens that I would update. What do you think? Well, I've already done it. I mean, I have the 51.4, the Canon version, mm -hmm. um, and I think, I mean, I even bought it from a friend of mine used. So I think I paid a couple fifty for it, two fifty for it. So, um, yeah, in Canada here, that's about a five hundred dollar lens. So, do we want to spend more on the Sigma? Um, granted, I mean, the Sigma is is the Sigma is making some great lenses. Like their their 85.14 is blowing away, you know, Canon and Nikon lenses. The the 51.4 is getting some rave reviews as well, um, but it's now more than the Canon. So, do you want to go to to that? And it's heavier as well. So, if you're a wedding photographer, then maybe you want to invest in that and get the better, sharper, faster glass. But if you're, you know, a hobby photographer, like a lot of my um, my readers, my people in my classes, on my tours and my workshops, they they just do photography because they enjoy it, really. For no other reason other than they like it and I think you know like Dawn said if you don't already have a 50 mil in your bag this new one this is the way to go because it's literally almost the same price as the old one but with some better stuff you know I too was excited about okay bigger focusing ring um, maybe a little bit more robust got the metal metal adapter ring um, and the uh, nicer focusing blades all that stuff right so if you don't already have one go get it. Simple as that, right? If you do have the same lens, the old version, I can't really see people ditching it and getting the new one for the same price. There's not going to be that much difference. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, there's always people that are, they have to have the newest, latest, greatest thing. So they might want to sell their old one for half that for 50 bucks and, you know, spend the extra 50 and get a new one. And somebody else gets, gets the old version, you know, for 50 bucks. So I can see a lot of, of play happening. Um, I'm not going to rush out and get it because I've already got both in my bag. That's right. a good comment, uh, Darlene. But you, when, you, when you say people looking for the latest and the greatest, they're probably not buying the entry-level products. No. They might be going for the 1.4 or even Canon has the 1.2. Both of those are getting relatively long in the tooth now. So maybe at some point uh, you know, that, that's going to be improved as well and so maybe those people that want to spend a little bit more on those lenses then go for it but I, I have to reiterate uh, you know I've said this before uh, in, in other conversations that we've had on TWIP that you know don't go out and buy a new lens unless you feel that your equipment is limiting you like you've encountered scenarios 
at which point you realize that it's not your skill that is the limiting factor, it's the gear itself. And so many photographers think, well, the better gear will make me a better photographer, but you have to outpace your gear before you think about going and, and upgrading to something better. You have to, to make a, a, a kind of commitment to yourself to upgrade your skills before your equipment. Totally agree. And, and with a lens like this that's now updated and has you know some of the modern technology and it's only hundred twenty five dollars this is this is the uh, almost the exception to that rule well everybody's gonna tell you to get the nifty fifty and and a lot of people I've had a lot of clients and I'm sure you guys have too that don't even know why you know they might have the fifty well somebody told me I needed this because it, it says F something on it mm -hmm. and you know, they don't know but for a hundred and a quarter you know why not and and then they get to actually experience that and have that brighter lens in the bag and I mean if you've got the 5118 and an 18 to 200 on your your rebel then you can shoot just about anything you want and you know it's so funny because I I have a lot of times where I'm doing photography workshops like macro uh, workshops and I tell you know just bring any gear you've got it doesn't matter what you have and a lot of people show up without a macro lens but they've got a 50 millimeter lens and I say just put it on your camera backwards to give me this weird puzzled look and uh, and then there's a a great lesson in optics and how those lenses can work as a pretty much a one to one macro lens when you stick it on backwards and you can get a little adapter it costs you about five bucks to do that so if you're willing to experiment uh, and kind of think outside the box with your photography. Uh, like you said, Rob, there's a lot of people that don't know why they have it, and that's another reason why you know, people, that they discover it. You know, if they're told and, and if they're shown how to use their gear in new and interesting ways, there's a lot you can get out of a lens uh, in, in that kind of price range uh, for that caliber. Absolutely. And if I could take that to the next step, which is, um, uh, I actually wrote an article on my website last week, I can give you the link to it if you want, which is seven questions to ask yourself before you upgrade to full frame. Because that's another question that I get a lot in my classes is, I want to get a full frame camera. So I actually turn it around to them. Anytime I ha have a student that says, I, I need to get this or I want to get this, and I'm like, just be clear, you know, do you really need it or is it a want? You know, do you really have to have that to make your photography better? And is it going to make your photography better? And most of the times the answer is probably not you know can you better invest that money in more classes or can you invest that money in in travel you know and go on a go on a workshop or a tour where you can actually spend a week or two weeks photographing and and have an experience of immersing yourself more um, you know I mean we have people come back from from my workshops and my tours saying that I my photography is better just because I did it every day for you know X number of days so I mean I would really ask themselves or ask yourself if you're listening to this um, is this something that you really need and in the case of the 50 mil lens like you said if we've, we've already said it if you don't already have it it is a great lens to have and and maybe you want to do like Don says figure out why everybody says that you should have it right I mean what I tell people is it's lightweight, it weighs almost nothing, the new one is one ounce heavier, okay big deal, um, it weighs almost nothing, put it in your bag, you know, it's super light, big aperture, it's great for low light photography, um, and it'll actually help you focus in darker situations where, you know, maybe your kit lens will have trouble. Sure, and that's a good point too, with a 50 millimeter 1.8 lens, that's, that's a 75 millimeter lens on a crop sensor camera. So that's yep. a pretty nice portrait focal length. And then if you do move up to the full frame, well, you can still use your 50 millimeter lens. It just becomes a little wider. So, Well, compression uh, it not affected by the size of the sensor. It, it's, it's only affected by the, the focal length itself, right? So it, it, uh, it will give you the same framing uh, as, a, uh, as a 75 millimeter lens, which a lot of people are looking for, you know, especially sure. if you're using it on a crop sensor. And then who knows, down the road, upgrade to a full frame. You can take this uh, this lens along with you as part of that kit because if you're if you've got an entry level digital SLR, it's probably going to be a crop sensor. You get this lens, and then if you buy a new camera, you can buy just the body. You already have a lens in your bag, and you can go out and experiment and learn a whole heck of a lot from it, as we've all said. Absolutely. So this is kind of a weird question, maybe, but you know, Canon and Nikon get a lot of flack, especially on this weekend photo. Um, for not really jumping on board with mirrorless cameras and not really ha getting serious about that. But um, do you think that something like this, like smaller lenses, that I, the uh, article mentioned that the, the new 518 is smaller than the original one, um, and things like the, uh, like Nikon has the 300 millimeter f4 PF lens that's very small. Do you think that Canon and Nikon are doing things like this to 
make their DSLR smaller instead of going to the mirrorless, or is that am I just reaching for answers there? Well, Canon has put uh, they, they've got their SL1, their really yep. small uh, mirrorless camera, and they also right. have their their uh, EOS M series. But I mean, they've abandoned that in North America for the most part. Right. Uh, so who knows what Canon is doing? They've got a lot of different uh, you know lines in the lake. Who knows what they'll pull up? Um, I, I wish they were doing more, though. I mean, if this is part of their strategy, it's too little, too late. Uh, and so I am hoping that. that We'll get a wonderful announcement in a couple of months saying, hey, uh, Canon and Nikon uh, are rolling out full-frame uh, mirrorless cameras to compete with the likes of Sony uh, and, uh, and Olympus and Panasonic and the, the growing market. Uh, that you know, If I had a Canon uh, full-frame mirrorless camera, I would add that to my kit. You know, I'm actually I'm contemplating uh, buying an EOS um, M3 uh, from Europe just to have that in my bag because I've got all of these lenses that I would like to sort of like we were talking about with the the, the Lily Cam. Um, I would like to have a second camera as sort of a backup behind the scenes thing, and I've got all of the gear that I already have with me. I don't want to carry two sets of lenses if I don't have to. Uh, and so if I could get a mirrorless camera from them, I I'll be their first customer. Um, will I buy smaller equipment that doesn't kind of uh, cut into that? Well, no, probably not. I'm not going to buy a lens simply because it weighs, well, it actually weighs a little bit more, but as a smaller size, no, they're, they're not going to get me as a customer. I don't know. What do you think, Darlene? Well, I mean, it's funny that you say that because I, I recently, you know, not jumped ship from Canon, but I still have my Canon gear, but I invested in the Fuji X-T1 system for traveling because, and it's not full frame, it's APS-C sensor. Um, because I just simply wanted to carry less crap around with me when I'm traveling. You know, um, I went to Vegas to the WPPI show where I got to hang out with the man himself, Frederick, and um, all I took was my uh, Fuji body, the kit lens which came with it. With, oh no, I didn't even take the kit lens. I took uh, the 3514 that I bought for it and the funky little uh, Rokinon 8mm. And literally, the camera was around my neck, and I put the other lens in my purse, which is, you know, not really handy if you're a guy. And that's it. No backpack, no big camera bags, nothing. And uh, it takes great photos. You know, like, for traveling, it's super simple. It's waterproof. It's weather-resistant. Yeah, I think Canon and Nikon, if they want to stay in the game, they're going to have to come up with something better than a lens that's a little bit smaller. And, you know, the SL1 is it's their smallest DSLR. It still has a mirror, but the mirrorless stuff that they came out with is just not up to park, and, and they're not playing with the big boys in the mirrorless game. Yeah, I agree. So the flat continues on This Week in Photo. For <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, story number three is something that I admit I had to do a lot more research about because I'm not familiar with uh, with Wolfram Alpha. I'm, uh, I guess I'm not that computer savvy. I don't know how else to put that. But um, so the story is that, uh, that let's see, I'll just read it here. Uh, the CEO of Wolfram, Stephen Wolfram, writes that he has long wondered when computers would be able to answer the common question, what is this a picture of? And he says, I'm excited to be able to say that we've reached a milestone. His company has been working on this problem for some time now, and they're finally adding a function called image identify into the Wolfram language. So basically, what they've got now is a, a public site where you can drag an image, and the computer will basically tell you what the picture is, what the subject of the photo is. So this is, at first, I, I, I literally had to ask Frederick, why, why are we talking about this? Uh, I don't really... You know, like, why do we need this? But then um, I started thinking about the conversation I had with Frederick last week on TWIP about um, basically Skynet and our Terminator future and, and artificial intelligence. And, and what do you think, Don? Is this another step towards, um, you know, we've got self-composing camera apps. We've got intelligent auto cameras. We've got autonomous walking robots. Is this just another step towards computers taking over the world? It is, uh, but this is one that I welcome. Uh, you know, for, first of all, uh, a Wolfram Alpha is is awesome, and you know, you, you might encounter it even though you might not realize it. There's certain questions that if you ask Siri on an iPhone, it pulls through Wolfram Alpha and brings up results from there. Like I could ask it, you know, Siri, what's the atomic weight of iron? And then it references Wolfram Alpha, gives me that little uh, depiction. Might say it out 
uh, verbally, but it, it, it's, it's a wonderful tool in many, many different ways, and they're always innovative, and they always have been. Um, and this is a great, uh, th this is something that for a lazy photographer, if they perfect this, this is gold. Because that means that if I take a picture of a flower, I don't have to keyword it with the word flower. That can be automatically added. So if it's uh, rolled into a plugin or you know, into the core of Lightroom or whatever you're using to catalog your images, um, it, it can be huge because Right now, I'm using uh, GPS information to help uh, organize and sort out my data. All the, the metadata uh, in the photos are helpful. But still, the one missing thing is what it is a photo of. And there's, uh, there's no computer equivalent to tell me what that is uh, un until now. Now, um, I plugged in a couple of different images, like you know, a tree. It figured out what a tree was, uh, a flower. It got that. Um, I put in some other weird ones. Uh, I, I put in um, a picture of myself uh, uh, holding a, uh, a very big uh, you know, camera lens, and it came out with some some weird animal. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> I, uh, th this picture of um, I had this picture of Toronto, and uh, and so uh, it uh, it correctly identifies it as a laser. Uh, and, <laughs> Uh, it, interesting. Uh, I mean, clearly you can see where it's getting some of those ideas from, uh, but the algorithm is far from perfect. And uh, the good thing about it, though, is I could go in and I could tell it that this is a cityscape at night. And so it can learn, I hope, it's taking that uh, that information val uh, as, as value and refining these algorithms. Um, as this continues to mature, uh, I certainly hope that it becomes reliable enough for us to use as a tool. Uh, but then, you know, if we bring it back to uh, to other ideas like the lily cam, man, the sky is the limit uh, as to where you could apply this technology. Absolutely, and that that was my question. The um, in, in the lily documentation, it says they're working on a feature where it will recognize you and work on keeping you in the frame. So. You know, Darlene, maybe maybe you can just have your lily cam and program it to shoot. Well, I like waterfalls and I like bears, and then you just throw it and it goes and finds them. Finds right? you a bear, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, hey, there's a new game for wildlife photographers. Hey, it's kind of like cheating, you know. It, it's interesting because I played with it a little bit too, and I got the same kind of mixed results that that Don did, where um, I put in a photo of some sushi that I'd taken on my iPhone, and it thought it was confection, so it thought it was a, a candy or something. Um, but I put in um, a shot I took of some some rows of food at the grocery store, and it said it was a store. So I mean, I think I think there is room for improvement for sure. Like it probably was, it probably got less than fifty percent of the ones right that I put in. Um, it recognized that I was a person. I didn't have a big giant lens, so maybe that's the key there, Don. But it didn't recognize other things that I thought it would that would be fairly simple, like something on a plate, you know, that was food that was recognizable. So I think if if we can, like Don said, improve the reliability of it, um, the keywording application that he mentioned is is huge, especially for you know people doing stock photography, um, things like that. And if you could integrate with Lightroom, that would be huge because I mean I'm sitting on thousands, tens of thousands of images in my catalog, and have I keyworded them all properly? No, because when I first started using Lightroom, I was really bad at it and just kind of didn't wasn't doing it religiously do I want to go back you know eight ten years and keyword 10,000 images no but what if I could pull them into this software and have it keyword them for me you know and do it with some reasonable expectation of accuracy you know that would be huge and even if it's not a hundred percent fifty percent or less than fifty percent uh, I'm not uh, I'm not so keen on but eighty percent to eighty five percent yeah you know that yeah. that's Good. I'm going to really enjoy that. That's going to be a lot of fun because, yes, it might incorrectly, if I type in lasers, I might get cityscapes. Um, but I might also get all of my laser pictures, which I have none of. But um, I can then weed through those and, and me being able to find an image by sorting through all the clutter, well, I might be sorting through a hundred images of clutter rather than a hundred thousand. Yeah. And so it doesn't have to come much farther than this to be useful. Sure. And it takes, you know, Lightroom CC has facial recognition and this would just be the next you know, huge leap beyond that. But even if you're, say you're uploading for stock photography and you don't have to keyword things, mm. you can just upload a thousand images and know that the software, that the uh, stock site is going to automatically keyword everything for you based on this technology. That would be a, a huge time saver. Um, I think the uh, the article said it recognizes around 10,000 things now. That just That just sort of popped into my head that uh, one of the big deals with Nikon cameras and the... Um, uh, the metering 
is that they have a, a catalog of 300,000 images that it compares the scene to to try to determine what you're shooting and what the exposure should be. So it seems like technology like this would could help cameras work better too. You know, what do you what do you think about that, Darlene? What was the number you used for Nikon? Three hundred. It's it's some ridiculous number, and I'm I'm I didn't look it up. I should have. Okay. But um, if the camera recognizes what you're trying to shoot, not only not just that the camera would magically make your picture for you, but at least you know maybe if you're in aperture priority mode, you wouldn't have to adjust your exposure compensation, for example. Right, like if it knows it's supposed to be a white flower versus something else. Um, yeah, I could see some application for that. What struck me, though, as you said that, was the numbers, right? Like you said, there's 10,000 the things that it recognizes now, and if Nikon says that they have 300,000 things, well, there's our percentage. They've got a ways to go before they can make this, um, you know, thing work a little more accurately. So I think we've got a ways to go to hit our 85%, Don, but... Who knows how quickly they can get there, right? If this is a new technology or growing technology, we could see this in in a year be something that's actually usable by by photographers. Yeah, and you know, I, and I did see that they had. Uh, I uploaded a picture of a snowflake, and it figured out, yes, that's a snowflake. I uploaded another photo of a snowflake, and it thought it was a very specific kind of uh, coniferous tree. <laughs> And so it wasn't just like a tree or an evergreen. It was like the, the Latin name of this particular kind of tree. And it got it wrong, clearly. But the fact is that whether or not it works now, they plan to make it that granular. Uh, to, to be able to, say, take a photo of a flower and not just know that it's a flower, but know exactly what species what of flower or family of flower it is. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a whole new level of useful. Mm -hmm. Even just for the average person, you know, like never mind the stock photographers or those of us that want to keyword things. What if about the average person that just sees a bird out in the wild, you know, and they photograph it and they want to know what kind of bird that is? Drop it in there. It's like, oh, it's a blah 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 warbler or whatever, you know, or or a flower, right? Is this poison ivory? Should I touch it or not? You know, that kind of stuff on your on your iPhone. That would be handy to know. Absolutely. I use a, an app. I'm not a very good birder. I, I like to shoot lots of different subjects, but I don't know all the different types of birds. So there's an app from, I believe it's Cornell University called Merlin, and you can put in where you are and two or three different colors of the bird and sort of how big it is, and it will give you, normally the bird that you're looking at is one of the top three things of, of, of its suggestions, and it works really great. But it would be really cool if you could just snap a picture of it or upload a picture on your phone, like you said, and it'll say, oh, that's a you know, rosette spoonbill. Yeah, and even if you can't get a picture on your phone, I mean, now all these cameras that have Wi-Fi capability, right. right? You can take the camera shot, send it by Wi-Fi to your phone, and then zap it into the app. I can see this being very useful right away because in this area of the world, there's maybe three or four different species of birds that have blue in them. So if the software could determine what the bird is versus what the background is and what colors are in the bird, then it can show me pictures of all of the birds that are blue uh, in this area. And there's not many. I can easily pick it. And it doesn't have to do all of the heavy lifting to make that happen. Right. Great. Well, see, I started out not even knowing where this was going to go, and, and that's, that's really interesting. And I'm ready. I'm ready for the technology now. That's great. Well, before we get into the listener Q&A, I want to thank another sponsor for this week's episode of This Week in Photo, and that's our friends at FreshBooks. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use invoicing solution that's helping freelancers and small business owners get organized and save time invoicing. You can try FreshBooks for free. Just head over to freshbooks.com twip and enter twip in the how did you hear about us section when you sign up. And as I've said on This Week in Photo before, we use FreshBooks as the back end to basically run most of the stuff behind the scenes on this business to keep the lights on and to keep everybody happy. Because as we all know, as creative professionals, we're not necessarily focused on capturing our income, expenses, and tracking billable time and all that. And I think the reason that we don't capture all of those things is simple. It's boring. We're creatives. We like fun stuff. We like Photoshop and Lightroom and you know all these other cool things that let us express that side of our brain and thankfully FreshBook offers us as small business owners a way to quickly and easily keep track of our time and money without disrupting our workflow or 
you know, sort of messing with our creative juices. With FreshBooks, you can invoice clients. It's easy. You can do it in seconds, and expenses can be automatically imported so that you don't have to lift a finger. You're just doing the stuff on the back end while you do other cool stuff. You can even track billable time as easy as starting a timer on your on your mobile phone. You can whip up business reports. You can stay on top of your income, expenses, and tax time is coming up. So with a couple of clicks, you can generate reports for your CPA or your accountant so that you're staying out of trouble. So grab some popcorn, learn how to fresh books by watching some of their free getting started webinars. I'm a big fan of webinars and they've got some excellent ones online for you to check out. Once again, if you want to check FreshBooks out, you can just head over to freshbooks.com slash TWIP, enter the code This Week in Photo or TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section to start your free 30-day trial. All you need is an email address to, uh, to try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. Just go over to freshbooks.com slash TWIP and enter TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section. And we want to thank FreshBooks for their support of This Week in Photo. Okay, Darlene and I are really grateful that Don is on the show because we were talking about this question and, and we had no idea. And Don said, no problem, I got this. So uh, this week's question is from Slawick, it looks like. Um, Does anyone know how I can track down who is linked to my, my photo from Flickr? Um, and I'll paraphrase here. He has one photo that he shot and published a few years back that's getting lots of traffic, like 30 or 40 views per day. but He's only getting, he's not getting very comments, very many comments and very many faves. So um, he says, I'm happy that people are looking at this photo, but I'm very curious where the traffic is coming from. I did search it in Google Images, but only found links to Flickr. Any ideas? So Don, take it away. Yeah, so uh, Flickr does have a statistics engine built into it, although with some of their uh, recent renovations to their website, it becomes more and more difficult to find. And I know in the past, and this was years ago, so it might not be the same now, um, you had to be a paying user of Flickr uh, in order to get access to your statistics. That may have changed, so uh, you know, I encourage you to, to look it up and, and see if that's something that you'd need to do. Um, but I've got a great example here because I, I put up this one photo uh, of, um, uh, of a book that I had published. Uh, just I was trying to, uh, uh, to promote a, a special deal that I was doing. And, and so I just put up a, a cover shot of the book. And as you can see, it's uh, 15,000, almost 16,000 views, relatively few faves, and only a single comment. So this sounds pretty much the same as, as uh, to, to what, um, uh, uh, what was his name, uh, what was writing in about. Uh, I forget his name already. Slawick. Slawick, yes. Okay. So um, in this case, there used to be on the um, uh, on the side of the uh, of the panel here. There used to be like a little stats icon, um, but that seems like it's missing now. It doesn't seem to be a part of it. In certain parts of Flickr, you can still find that. So if I go to my Flickr recent activity screen, you'll have your stats, and by far uh, that that. Uh, photograph of my book cover uh, has 174 views in in the last day, which is far more than any more recent images that were posted after that. And so, this is really puzzling. It's very confusing. Now, if I click on that, um, I I can see you know the activity within the last uh, 28 days. Uh, if this ever loads up, there should be a little graph there. Um, but then I can go down here and I can see the refers today and yesterday. Now, if you have um, external linkers coming in from other sources besides Flickr, yeah, you can see it right there. It's all kind of up and down. Um, like if it was linked to by Google or another blog or a forum or something, all of those domains are going to be listed right here. Um, but you might be in the same scenario that I am, and it only says Flickr. And so it's still just as puzzling. And so where the heck are these people coming in from? If I click on Flickr here, uh, the .com, now I will see the referring domain and all of the search terms that people had used. Apparently, if you post a picture of a book on Flickr, people search for books and they click through to it. I had no idea that that's where all of the traffic to this image was coming from, people searching for photographs of books on Flickr. So uh, that, that sort of solves the mystery. Now, if you can't find that link on your um, on your uh, uh, recent activity page, if you're on the page itself for the um, uh, the, the image, uh, you'll see up in the, the browser, it might have something after the number, but in this case, it's flickr.com slash photos slash doncom, that's me, slash the identifying number of the photograph. Now, get rid of anything that might be trailing that if there is something, and simply type in stats. 
and it'll automatically bring you to the statistics page for that photograph uh, right there and then. So now it, it will, might give you a warning if you're not a paying customer if they didn't add that to every Flickr user, but that's where you would see it and probably it'd give you a link to upgrade or whatever you need to do to get that information in your hands. So Don, I've been following along on my account while you were doing that and um, I see no stats on my recent activity page and if I do the slash stats thing it says page not found, this is, this is not a page you're looking for, seems like you're trying to see one of your own photos or videos so clearly it is not for unpaid members. Well, there you go. So uh, I'm, I'm grandfathered in uh, to the Flickr Pro for, uh, program from ages ago. So if, if that's the case, Darlene, uh, Darlene, if you can say that you're not a, a paying subscriber to Flickr, you don't have that information, then you need to shovel out a couple of dollars to Flickr in order to get the privilege to see that info. However, I wonder if it becomes retroactive or not, or if it only starts collecting the stats once you have paid your coin. I seem to remember vaguely in a haze years ago uh, that it was retroactive, that it would build your statistics um, going back to a certain period of time anyhow, uh, not in perpetuity, but at least for a couple of weeks. That would be interesting to find out. Well, thanks, Don. That's definitely more helpful than I would have been. Uh, the only other thing I was going to suggest, Rob, was the tineye.com, which is, you know, a lot of places, a lot of uh, photographers use that resource to search to see if their images are being copied um, illegally on the internet. You could take that image and literally drop it in there and see where, if it shows up anywhere else. Right. Well, from, from his question, he said he searched for it and, and only found links to Flickr. So it sounds like Don's idea about um, yeah. different search terms within Flickr might be the answer there. I find that Tinai does a better job of searching than Google Images sometimes, okay. though. I, I think they're mutually exclusive in the most part. Like, they'll find completely different yes. sets of things. And uh, to that point, too, Bing now has a reverse image search, too. So uh, with those three, uh, and uh, I use a, um, uh, a copyright infringement uh, you know, a settlement company that's really wonderful called Image Rights, and they have one where you can upload all of your photographs similar to what Tinai does and uh, see where they show up online and whether or not they're authorized uses or not. Uh, and then pursue a case if, uh, if one is deemed necessary. And so there's lots of different options out there for you to find your photographs. Um, however, if it's a Flickr issue, you probably need to dig into the Flickr internals to figure it out. Great. Okay, well, if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, then visit thisweekinphoto.com and click on the Submit a Question link to send us a question, or you can leave us a voice message. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by our newest sponsor, and that's our friends over at Animoto.com. In today's connected and visual world, video is really now a necessity. It's no longer an option. In fact, all of the social media platforms now allow video. People are using video as a powerful way to stand out from just static photos. Even Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg predicts that video will be the primary form of communication on Facebook within five years. And with video, you can better engage your customers and your friends, you can drive more traffic to your website, and you can boost your company or your personal image online by just using video. But learning how to use video and spending the money to create compelling videos is expensive, and it takes a long time to learn the tools necessary to create cool-looking videos. So that's where Animoto comes in. Animoto is a drag-and-drop video builder that gives you everything you need to produce professional videos in just minutes. You just need a logo and some photos or some video clips. You throw them in there, and boom, the thing crunches them and spits out an amazing-looking professional video. They've got 1,000 or over 1,000 commercially licensed songs for you to use, courtesy of Triple Scoop Music. Animoto has partnered with respected photographers, including Kelly Brown, Jerry Gihonis, Tamara Lackey, and more to provide you with exclusive professionally designed video styles. Plus, if you have your own logo, you can replace the Animoto branding with your own logo on there. Plus, you can create unlimited HD videos. You can share your videos on your website. You can throw them up on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, email. You can even download them and burn them to a DVD if you want to. Plus, they've got a cool Lightroom plugin, so you can you can shoot your images directly from Lightroom into Animoto and have it remix them just like that. No more exporting to a folder than uploading. You can just send them directly out to Animoto from your desktop. 
Animoto is really more than just a slideshow. They 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 allow you to tell a story. You can choose the right music, set a cool mood, and really bring a series of images and video clips to life. And you can market your photography business with video with just a few clicks. You know more editing experience is needed. You can blend those video clips and photos seamlessly into one final piece, really without any extra work. And you can create your first video in about 10 minutes. You know, and this is about less than the time it takes for you to get your favorite caffeinated drink from your favorite barista. And Animoto has a special free trial. It's a no-risk free trial. You can try them for free and join the thousands of photographers who are already using Animoto to stand out from the crowd. Just head over to animoto.com slash twip and use the offer code TWIP and they'll knock 15% off an Animoto Pro account. Once again, that's Animoto.com slash TWIP and use the offer code TWIP for 15% off. So we're going to jump right into our Picks of the Week segment. And remember, your pick can be anything as long as it's photography related. And we'll start with Darlene. Okay. Um, I couldn't decide what to, to pick. I see I'm just going to do a screen share here. Um, hopefully this will work. My screen share doesn't always work. Um, I see a lot of things come across my desk as um, the DPS editor, and one of the things that um, we got a chance to review, uh, one of our writers did, was a new Flash by a company called Flashpoint, and they make all kinds of different things. Um, can you see my screen now? Yep. So this was um, the review that our, our writer did on DPS, so it's called the Flashpoint Zoom Lion, like as in lithium ion. And the cool things about it um, that I was actually interested in getting one to try out is it uses a lithium-ion battery, not um, not double A's or typical rechargeables. So similar to like what you would use in your camera battery. So they're saying, um, and she tested it out on various different shoots. She she did a food shoot with it, and she did a model shoot with it, um, with umbrellas and everything. And they're saying you can get up to 350 full power shots with one battery. So, you know, I would challenge you to do that with double A's. Um, fast recycle time. The other thing that's really cool is it comes, you can get it with a remote, which, um, you know, tran transceiver and receiver, goes on the camera. And the one that goes on the flash, though, and the challenge that I have with some of the ones that I've used before are they usually go under the flash. So if you're doing an umbrella and you got to put it on a stand, you end up with a stand with the remote with the flash on top, and it gets a little precarious. This one plugs into the side of your flash. Um, and the neat thing about the whole thing that I priced it out was that you can get uh, the flash, and they recommend getting a second battery because you don't want to run out. You can't put anything else in it. Um, you can get a flash with an extra battery and a set of remotes for under 300 bucks, like just under 300 bucks. If you want two flashes, I mean, we're talking a little bit less. You know, you don't need to get the remotes again. You just need the receiver. 600 bucks for two flashes, two remotes, and it's fully TTL, and it's compatible with Canon speed lights. So if you already have a Canon speed light, get a set of one and you're off and running, where you go. Wow, and that'll do uh, high-speed sync too? As far as I know, I haven't tested it myself yet, but um, I put the, the link to the product on um, Adorama, which is the exclusive distributor of it, and uh, they've got all the specs and everything for it there. Great, that's a great pick. Well, how about you, Don? All right, well, um, I, I hope this one can still slide through because my pick predates photography by about a century and a half. Um, <laughs> So uh, I, I want everybody uh, to go and watch uh, the documentary film called Tim's Vermeer. Uh, Rob or Darlene, have you seen this? No. I haven't seen it. All right. Uh, well, uh, this is um, a uh, documentary following the, um, the uh, I guess, discovery made by Tim Jennison. And uh, you might know that name. He is the founder of New Tech that makes the TriCaster uh, and way back in the day made the video toaster hardware. He's a, an inventor and an entrepreneur. And he got to thinking about Johannes Vermeer's paintings from uh, about 350 years ago or so. And uh, Vermeer had the uncanny ability to get photographic quality uh, in his paintings in a way that the human eye cannot perceive. You know, there, there are certain compressions that happen within the retina that, you know, if we see two gray squares right next to each other uh, that are slightly different in color, we can tell them apart. But if we separate them, we can no longer see that they are different. They will appear the same to us. Um, and Vermeer's paintings uh, happened to overcome that. And so it, it had a realism that was unparalleled. 
And so uh, the documentary kind of profiles Tim's discovery of the technique used. Uh, and it, it's, it's all about mirrors and optics before photography uh, by, by a good number of years. And there, there have been other artists uh, along the way that have done this. And so, um, you know, with, uh, uh, <laughs> with this particular setup, um, you know, what you would do is, this is a very simple uh, arrangement where you're copying a photograph. And so what you would be doing is you would set up the photograph uh, uh, sort of uh, almost uh, straight up and down as long as the mirror is on a 45 degree angle to the original. Uh, and then what happens is you look down through the mirror uh, and on the edge of the mirror, just like those two gray squares next to one another, you can see exactly what color you should be painting uh, in that particular area of it. Uh, and as you as you complete that, I mean, uh, Tim had absolutely no skill whatsoever uh, uh, as an artist, and here he made a uh, a, a painting of a portrait of his uh, father-in-law. And so, with no skill of an artist, he's able to do that, and he figured it out with just a simple mirror and doing an eight by ten photograph. Uh, but he took that technique farther, and uh, I'll, I'll save the, the rest of the story. But what he had done is uh, he recreated one of the rooms in uh, yeah used for one of Vermeer's paintings called the Music Lesson. And uh, so he rebuilt the room from scratch, and using mirrors and optics, uh, he he painted a duplicate of it without using the original whatsoever. Uh, and so he, uh, you know, over the course of about a year, uh, was able to to paint this uh, uh, th this duplicate. And it's a it's a wonderful documentary uh, that delves into the sort of the science of optics and the beginning of photography before photography even existed. So, you know, I got to thinking. I, I want to do this. I want to paint one of my photographs because that that's a unique product. You know, I'm a I'm a, a professional photographer and I'm trying to sell my artwork and having a hand painted original photograph I think would be uh, quite an interesting thing. So uh, through a friend of a friend and through various contacts, I got in touch with uh, with Tim and had a great conversation about the kind of equipment needed uh, for anybody trying to do this. You you do need a mirror, but it's a very specific kind of mirror that you need. Um, these mirrors, uh, this is a, um, a first surface mirror, so it's a mirror on both sides, uh, meaning that there's glass and there's a reflective surface, and you need to have the reflective surface being the thing that comes up first and foremost uh, without the glass surface uh, above that. And the way Tim was producing his work, he actually had it on a microscope stand, and uh, he sent me one. So I, or not a microscope stand, a uh, um, microphone stand. So this is straight from from Tim. Uh, it's the mirror is still wrapped because they're very delicate for surface mirrors. And uh, behind me is my brand new studio space, and there will be room in here to set up a comparator mirror and do some uh, experimentation with Vermeer techniques uh, from about three and a half centuries ago. And so uh, go and watch Tim's Vermeer. In Canada, it's available on iTunes or on uh, on Netflix. I'm sure in other places it's available on iTunes. It's well worth you to watch. Uh, it, it's a bit lengthy. It drags on, but it fills in a lot of information for those wanting to understand the science and the discovery behind this. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Now, Don, do you have any experience as a painter? No, and so this is this is where the fun begins, right? Because I've uh, I've made a few. I, I can call them abstract paintings, but that's really stretching it. Uh, I wouldn't really call it art. And so I, I have no training as a painter. And so I'm going to dive into this and see if I can paint some photographs. And that's going to be one of my big experiments over the next couple of months. Wow, fascinating. Are you going to use acrylics or oil paints or what? Uh, probably acrylic simply because it would be drying faster and sure. uh, easier for me to, to, to work and experiment. Maybe I would experiment with oils after the fact, after I've developed some techniques. Uh, but it's all up in the air at this point. Yeah, oil paints, big boy stuff for sure. I've never even attempted that. So I have attempted oil paint. I have attempted oil paint. Um, back in the day of film, um, I did hand coloring black and white with actual oil paint, like the old and traditional way. And I actually did oil paint on color photos as well. And um, you probably could have done it with acrylics, but actually my experience with acrylic was that it dried too fast and I couldn't get it blended. So you might have to play around, and I'm interested to see what you come up with, Don. Yeah, definitely. My cat is messing around in the back failure. of the uh, I, I, I fully expect there to be mistakes made, and who knows if I'll end up with getting anything useful out of it, but I plan on documenting the process at the very least. So if I, if I make a complete mess and fail at it, I'll still show that to the world. You need a lily. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there you go. And some software that'll recognize a painting, so it'll yeah. know when to shoot when you're done. <laughs> nice. Full circle.
I love it. Well, my pick of the week was just announced this morning. It's I wish I could show you mine, but I don't have one yet. It's the uh, the Lumix G7, and uh, let me show a screen here. Uh, it is the newest um, newest camera in the G series from Lumix, and I do shoot uh, Lumix cameras pretty much exclusively. And this thing's got 4K uh, video capture, and specifically a couple of features that are really interesting to me are uh, 4K photo modes. And I use 4K photo mode on my GH4, especially if I'm shooting wildlife through a spotting scope. I'm, I'm shooting at about 1500 millimeters and with a big manual focus lens. So the 4K photo allows me to capture 30 frames per second and pick the shot I like and make, I mean, pretty big prints at, with an 8 megapixel still out of it. So the, the G7 has a mode called 4K burst mode where it records the 4K photo as you shoot the button, just like you would with just a high-speed motor drive setting. So instead of having to start the video and stop the video, just as you hold the button, you're going to rattle off 30 frames per second. So it also has the articulated screen that I like on the GH4. Um, it has two control dials. And from what, I, what I'm seeing, it's a lot smaller than the GH4. And, uh, and lighter weight. So this is, I, I'm specifically looking forward to uh, attaching this to my spotting scope and, uh, and going to shoot some wildlife. So check that out. Um, hopefully I'll have one soon. Um, it would be really cool since I'm actually on the Lumix team if I could get one sooner than somebody. <laughs> <laughs> What's <laughs> the price point? Um, that's the other great part about it. It's, so it's all these 4K features and it's less than 800 bucks with the kit lens. Is it so, weatherproof like the Fuji? It's it's not weatherproof. This is definitely a step below the the GH4. This is not the pro magnesium body. It's a polycarbonate body. Um, the the G line, the the G and the number like the G6 and now the G7 is more of a consumer oriented thing. So to have this technology in a camera that's spec that's basically a consumer model is is kind of a big deal too. So uh, before we sign off, what do you guys have planned in the coming months? Uh, Darlene, what's next for you? Oh, boy. Well, we got a few trips coming up. Um, we head to Oregon usually every summer, and I am um, teach a course on the course on the coast there, uh, night photography, and attend a conference in Portland. And then uh, we're heading out to, to Peru in August to scout um, some locations for a future tour. Uh, we've got a lot of requests for that from our current people. And then uh, off to Nicaragua in November with the next tour. I'm even taking my mom along this time. She's very excited. And uh, I'm working on some Lightroom presets that I'll have available soon. Very cool. How about you, Don? What's next? Uh, well, uh, before I say uh, anything, I do want to say that that movie, uh, Tim's Vermeer, is uh, uh, produced and, and directed by uh, Penn & Teller and narrated by Penn Gillette. So if you're a fan oh, of those no, guys, yeah. then... Definitely check that out. Um, but uh, I just I just moved into my new house and my new studio. This is my office. Across uh, the hall is a studio space to hold workshops. Um, I've just uh, filled up a couple on water droplet uh, uh, refraction photography, but I just listed some more. There's full day macro workshops. There's weekend workshops to go by nearby waterfalls and do some astrophotography. If you're interested in anything like that, and uh, if you're looking for a day long thing and you live in central Ontario, fantastic. If you want to travel in for that uh, uh, the waterfall workshop, we'll have a ton of fun. There's a lot to learn photographically uh, with a subject like that. And uh, you know, I, I do apologize for the echo. I haven't put anything on the walls if there's been an echo coming uh, in through my microphone yet. And uh, it's funny because I'm panicked when I'm trying to figure out how to light this because I, I just just put my desk into this room. It's the only thing in here. So I'm lit by a flashlight on a tripod, and then there's another tripod that has a piece of spare drywall uh, that is reflecting off of that. And so that is how I come to you today. And uh, I apologize if it's uh, if it's a little bit. Uh, uh, kind of put together at the last second, but I'm glad to be part of this. Well, you got Pretty nice flashlights. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be a nice flashlight, too. Very cool. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of TWIP. Uh, thanks for having me as the guest host. And a big thanks to our sponsors, Panasonic Lumix Cameras, Lynda.com, and FreshBooks for your support. And, guys, uh, where can people keep up with you? doncom.ca, D-O-N-K-O-M.ca, uh, and slash workshops if you want to see those workshops that I mentioned. That links to everything where I am on social media too, so 
get connected. Send me an email. You know, I love to have conversations with all of you guys. And, uh, and I look forward to, you know, the last time I said that, send me an email, I got a bunch of them, about a dozen or so within the first day. And it was so much fun. So many great conversations came up. So if you're curious about any of the things that we talked about uh, or, or the things that, that I'm into with uh, macro photography and infrared and all of that, just send me an email and uh, let's chat about it. I always have fun with it. Cool. How about you, Darlene? You can find me at digitalphotomentor.com and DP Mentor on Twitter and um, same on Digital Photo Mentor on Facebook. You can also find me on DPS um, on a lot of the articles. I edit everything that goes through there. So um, if anybody is interested in ever doing a guest article on Digital Photography School, we always take applications. Just go down to the bottom of any of the uh, posts and hit the contact form and click on I want to write for DPS and I will get it. Great. And if you're interested in what I'm doing, you can keep up with me at robknightphotography.com and my workshops are at digitalphotoadventures.com. And uh, be sure and visit our website at thisweekinphoto.com and you can also find me there at uh, your itinerary. So uh, with that, that's, that ends the uh, This Week in Photo and we'll see you next time. It's time to take your lens cap off. Weekend Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.